Hello everyone, welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. This is episode number three. Today we are talking about property portfolio mistakes and how to fix them and what should an ideal property portfolio look like. Now for those who are looking to get something tangible out of this, please visit our Facebook group, Property Investment Australia, or reach out to me myself directly to get access to the Property Portfolio Fixer which is a quick and dirty and a nifty roadmap which would help you dissect your own portfolios. Now, of course, we do that on a financial model. But if you jump on our website, helpmebuy.com.au, you can select contact us to acquire a copy of this property portfolio fixer as well. Hi, guys. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are. My name is Moby. I'm here today with Moss today uh, for our third episode, Help Me Buy podcast. Uh, Moss and I are going to discuss today uh, a very, very important topic, which is very close to my heart. And 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 I guess I can relate to it. And it's a lot of people out there. Um, on an investment journey, we talked about a lot last, last podcast that people do make mistakes and there's a certain amount of mistakes you're allowed to make. But I guess um, these ex- these mistakes can be very, very costly and expensive. And we want to avoid them. But I guess we do all make mistakes and we learn from it. So today we're going to ask Moss um, some of the ways, how can we fix those mistakes and and go back to the right path? Moss, over to you. Thank you very much, Moby. And again, hello, everyone. Look, everyone makes the mistakes. Um, as we were discussing before the podcast that, you know, no one is prone to not making mistakes. You know, we are discussing about mistakes and having a bit of laugh today is predominantly because we haven't made any expensive mistakes. Uh, and a lot of uh, property profits, property gurus out there, they make a lot of mistakes as well, right? So there is nothing to be ashamed of in making a mistake. Um, it's understanding how to fix those mistakes, which is the key. And so that's what we are discussing today. So let's talk about the portfolio mistakes and typical mistakes that a lot of people would naturally do. And so I would potentially start somewhere around you know, people buying fundamentally a wrong property. Um, I call it a non-investment grade property. You know, you're looking at things like apartments or, or properties in mining towns or flood prone properties. And so a lot of people fall prey to that because there is heaps of sales agents out there who are pushing that stock, right? And so you need to naturally think about, okay, is this an investment grade property? What does an investment grade property qualifies? And of course, you are going to do another podcast talking just about those as well. Uh, so stay tuned, keep watching us, keep looking into us, keep listening to us. But the second mistake is about the timings. Okay. And so there are various types of timings in life. Okay. Timing in relation to the property itself and the timing in relation to your own property growth, or should I say the, the life cycle of the property life cycle that you are following. And so let's talk about the life cycle itself. In relation to your own life, you would be following a particular strategy or you might not be following a particular strategy. And so at various given point in your property life cycle, you might need chunks of cash flow or you might need equity to build your portfolio faster, to put your portfolio on steroids. And so a lot of people, what they do is without knowing what their portfolio needs or without talking to their broker, without talking to the property strategist, they just go blindly and buy properties. Of course, they might be the right property but they might buy the wrong property for their own self. So it might still be an investment-grade property take, but they might not be able to hold these properties for a very long time. Um, The other thing in relation to timing is in relation to the growth itself. 
So, you know, people naturally buy in infill suburbs, greenfield suburbs, where there's loads and loads of supply or not enough demand. Or even if there is heaps of demand, the supply basically supersedes the demand that is coming through. And so naturally, the true growth never eventuates in some of these suburbs. And you have to wait a really long time to see some of these growths. And there are a numerous number of examples. If I take Melbourne as an example, you know, you look, you look at Clyde, you look at Truganina, you look at all, all of these suburbs, right? You know, people who bought here in 2003, 2004, 2005, they didn't really see the growth coming through till 2012, 13, 14, right? Uh, versus people who bought there in 2010, they, you know, explored and got pretty much the same amount of growth, right? And so I would rather be that person who was buying there in 2010 rather than 2004, right? Because that property is not doing anything for me for those years. And so it's an opportunity cost that you need to consider when you're buying in some of these pockets as well, especially the infill pockets. So I guess, Moss, that brings me to a very, very important question. And, and that question is on a lot of people's mind. And I myself have asked myself that question a lot of times. What does an ideal portfolio looks like? Could you, could you explain to us? Yeah. And yeah, 100%. And so naturally what comes to people's mind is that, you know, you should buy the biggest property size. Biggest land size means the biggest property portfolio or the number of properties basically for some people resonates that this is the best property portfolio possible, right? (laughs) And I use this example that just the size of the diamond ring does not guarantee the success of the marriage, right? And so the size of the (laughs) land does not guarantee the success of the property portfolio. So it's very, very important that, you know, people say size matters, size matters. Hey, you know, you have to think about what matters, especially when you're building your property portfolios. Okay. And so if you think about an ideal property portfolio, an ideal property portfolio is really a sustainable property portfolio. A sustainable property portfolio is something that works on its own, is transferable, creates intergenerational wealth, can service itself off, and is well-managed. Now, I use these words very carefully that it has to be well-managed because a lot of people mismanage their portfolios as well. And you mismanage anything and you can potentially lose it, right? You mismanage your life and you would be at the verge of divorce. You mismanage your business and you would be looking at bankruptcy. And so you mismanage your property portfolio and you're looking at a poor retirement. Right? living hand to mouth, right? So you need to think about these things when you're building sustainable property portfolios. If I take a step further into this and explain this in a bit more detail, um, a sustainable property for portfolio naturally means that it is something that is able to generate its own income to pay off its own debt. It generates growth over multiple years and is set up in such a way that it can absorb market shocks like higher interest rate rise, higher inflation, job loss, you know, macroeconomic conditions, a bloody war, you know, and so it does not require a real person to provide cash flow or serviceability to basically protect these, these portfolios as these sustainable property portfolios. Now, banks love these sustainable property portfolios, which means that every time a bank look at a portfolio, which has a healthy LVR, has a lot of cash flow into it, they'll lend more money against it. Okay, so they're not lending money against you. They're lending money against the portfolio itself. And so you need a strong portfolio strategy to create a sustainable property portfolio. It does not happen automatically. People just think that, oh, I'm going to keep buying the properties and naturally, you know, one day it's going to be a sustainable property portfolio. No, not really, not necessarily. Yes, might be a fluke and you might end up there. But majority of the times, you know, you never get to that piece. 
I look at the strategy for sustainable property portfolios as a voice. It's a powerful tool. It can shine a light on something that has been hiding in the dark. It can change the way people think and it can change the way people act. And so similarly, a property strategy is a very powerful tool. It can place you on the map. It can change the way people think about it. It can change the way people think about money. It can change the way people spend money. But it's not going to do anything if you don't bloody set it up. Okay, So you need that strategy set it up up front in order to basically drive a sustainable property portfolio. So, Moss, I guess um, all of these things are literally music to my ears. And, and I think these are all logical things and in an ideal world. But I guess we would like to know, how do you build this ideal portfolio? Yeah. And look, I mean, ultimately, when you're thinking about buying an investment property or setting up these strategies or setting up a sustainable property portfolio, it's a process. It's not an event. A lot of people think about it as an event. You know, they think that it happens once or twice in life. It happens by surprise, you know, like getting your girlfriend pregnant, for example. Okay. So it's not an event. It's a process. You need to, it's a method. You need to take right steps. You need to do right things in order. You need to ask the right sequence of questions and you need to get those answers in the right order to make the right decisions before you even start looking at locations or before you even start looking at you know, what properties are going to boom. Uh, the purchase of the property itself comes at the very end and it's a byproduct of the process itself. And so let's talk about the process in, in itself. Okay, so I call this the Yeager method or the Yeager formula or the few method. There is various different names that I've given to it. And it's basically compromised of three things. It's yield, growth, and return. And Naturally, when people think about these three things, a lot of people know what yield is. You know, yield is an annualized rent divided by the purchase price of the property. Growth is what you're going to get from the property itself as you buy and hold, um, or that's what the market is going to deliver to you if you're buying it into the right product, if you're buying the right product in the right market. But return is a lot of people that people miss out on. And return is something that you control. Return is something that you deliver at your own peril, whether it be through manufactured equity, whether it be through conversions. There are various ways that you can deliver returns. And so when you're building these sustainable property portfolios, you're using the mix of these three things in various different forms. And so what I do is I classify this as a property investment life cycle into three stages. I, the three stages are first-time investor, an experienced investor, and naturally a high net worth investor who is you know, either going towards their retirement or already retired. And retirement doesn't mean that it has to be at 60 or 70, by the way, right? Retirement can happen at 30 or 40. You know, it just depends on, you know, how quickly do you achieve the goals. And so if you take a step back and you try to understand what does a first-time investor needs, out of these three things, the ingredients of yield, growth, and return, the first-time investor should always be chasing growth and yield. They should maintain their lifestyle, but create a lot of buffers in order to absorb shocks. I call this the foundation of a property strategy. Okay. Once you have done that foundational buying, what you can now do is you can still keep chasing growth. You can still manage the yields, but what you need to now introduce in your portfolio is the return. And the return is something where you are increasing your risk appetite to chase manufactured growth. So you don't want to depend on the market to deliver the growth to you anymore. Okay, You're not playing this gambling game anymore. 
you want to deliver the returns at your own peril. But you are managing it in such a way that you're maintaining the lifestyle, you still have a buffer, you still have cash flow coming through your properties. The third and the most important thing that people don't really think about is as a high net worth investor, all you care about is cash and cash returns. You don't really care about growth. Um, You don't really care about yield. Of course, yield is important. I shouldn't say this, that you don't care about yield. And growth is just an icing on the cake for them. Majority of the times a high net worth investor is living a retired life or going towards the retirement anyway. And again, you know, caveating it back, that retirement doesn't mean that you're ready to die. Retirement means that you are in the phase of life where you're financially independent. And so naturally for these people, it's all about return on equity and improving lifestyle. So it's not so much about waiting on the market to deliver growth to you. It's more about delivering consistent cash on cash returns on an ongoing basis. For, so for them, it's yield and it's returns. Those are the two things that matters the most and nothing else really matters. And that's how you build an ideal portfolio. So I guess, Moss, it brings me to my next question. And, and, and that question is, is basically, and I'll keep thinking about it, that for, to achieve that financial freedom and early retirement, uh, or whatever you kind of call it, you know, in, in, in my terms, you know, have, have that real freedom, your portfolio should be generating positive cash flow and the properties have to be a development properties. Now, shouldn't we always buy cash flow positive properties or, you know, when can we not buy cash flow positive properties? And, and I guess, you know, because um, sometimes, you know, you, make investment decision based on a few different things. And, and I guess maybe sometimes that retirement not is, retirement and financial freedom is not at forefront of your mind. But I guess, you know, I would love to have all my properties generate me some sort of cash flow back in my pocket instead of me negative gearing it. So let's talk about some of the, some of the things um, around that. And of course, look, you know, people do talk a lot about it. You see a lot of people talking about you know, focusing on cash flow positive properties. And of course, cash flow is an important strategy, especially when you're playing against inflation. Um, but a single dependent product does not evolve you from a first time investor to a high net worth investor. So it's an evolution, it's a transition of how do you go from a first time investor to being a high net worth investor? Let's take an example for a positive cash flow property. Okay. And so I'm a big believer that positive cash flow property is always a byproduct of interest rates and deposits. And so at any given point in time, you know, if you go, if you rewind your life back to say one year, you know, people were calling 4% yields at positive cash flow property, 4.5% yield at positive cash flow property, 5% yield at ca- positive cash flow property, right? And so as interest rate starts rising, this story flips. And so how do you ensure that you are not falling into this cycle of, oh, I want to go for a positive cash flow property? What you need to understand is, that the sustainable property portfolio is a portfolio that provides you with various exit strategies. And those exit strategies are what you're going to use in a downward going market or in a high inflation going market. And those exit strategies doesn't mean that you sell. Those exit strategies could mean that you create more yield into your portfolio. You create more return into your portfolio. Okay. And uh, also the important, the most important thing is you can hold on to these portfolios and these properties forever for as long as you want, right? Because the buffers are there, the foundations are there. You know, you have a choice to take a property from a 4% yield to a 9% yield, you know, that we did recently for a client. You know, we had a 
three bedroom, one bathroom. We converted to a rooming house. And, you know, we are renting each of these rooms separately, converting into a 9.8% yielding property. And so those are the powerful stories that you need to create for yourself in your own portfolio. Now, last but not the least, the macroeconomic factors should not have any impact on your portfolios, such that, you know, there are properties which generate 12% yields uh, versus there are properties that generate 2.5% yields. If you combine the two together into a single trust, you create an undestructible portfolio, right? Between 2.5% versus 12%. Now, people naturally say, oh, go for positive cash flow property. That naturally means that you can't buy anything in Melbourne. Well, Melbourne does not give you anything more than 2.5% yield. Okay, so what? Buy everything in Queensland, buy nothing in Sydney, uh, buy nothing in Canberra. Like that just does, does, doesn't make sense. In the long term, Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra in a long term would always outweigh, would always do better than, you know, regional markets, some of the smaller markets. Of course, in short term, you would see significant growth in some of these smaller markets. But that doesn't mean that you don't buy these properties. There are ways to acquire these properties while creating a sustainable property portfolio around it. So, and I guess, um, and I quite tend to agree with that diversification of geographical distancing and different factors and um, and huge influx of migration in different areas. So, keeping that in mind, how do you determine at what point of time, what style or what kind of property to acquire? Yeah, and look, I mean, that's a very good question. And it comes down to... That question is asked by pretty much every investor at any given point in time in their life. Okay. Every time they are going on a property journey or they are going on an acquisition journey, they'll ask this question, well, what sort of property should I acquire? And that's a question that they should always ask. And so what I have done is I've divided this into four scenarios. And we'll talk about these four scenarios in a bit more detail. And so these four scenarios are basically high cash flow, low cash flow. And two based on deposit, so high deposit and low deposit. And let's create some definitions around what does cash flow means and what does deposit means. So a high cash flow is defined by a salary where you can acquire, say, two or more properties at four hundred fifty thousand dollar price point. That defines a higher cash flow that you're generating out of your salaries. A lower cash flow basically indicates the opposite. You know, you can only acquire one uh, property at that given point in time. So this is an indication more of the borrowing capacity rather than the absolute nature of your salary. Okay, so it's very, very important because naturally people think that high cash flow means that you're making more money. Higher cash flow naturally means it makes more money, but it does not mean that you're generating more money through salary. There might be other, other streams of income. Okay. Now, in relation to the deposit, a higher deposit in these scenarios is defined by money that you can access in relation to whether it be refinanced equity or savings that you generally have, the higher the deposit, of course, the better. But a lower deposit is something that you are defining as a minimal deposit that you require for acquiring an investment grade property is in today's time. So you can safely assume in these scenarios that a lower deposit is somewhere around $60,000 and say a higher deposit is somewhere around $200,000. Okay. Yep. And so the four scenarios that we are going to discuss today is a high cash flow, high deposit scenario, low cash flow, higher deposit scenario, a high cash flow, low deposit scenario, and a low cash flow and a lower deposit scenario. Now, you can put yourself into these scenarios at any given point in time, depending on where your serviceability sits, 
and where your cash deposit sits. When, when I say cash deposit, I mean the refinance or the deposit side of things. Okay. Now, what's very, very important in these circumstances is that this is no way, shape or form a complete or holistic strategy scenarios. This is a point in time decision that you're going to make when you are, you know, talking to your mortgage broker and you're saying, Hey, I'm looking to buy a property. You know, the answer that you need to give him is, okay, I'm going to buy X number of properties, you know, say 540, 450 into two properties. And I'm going to buy in this in this location. And those are the answers that you need at that given point in time. And how do you reach those answers based on your borrowing capacity? And based on your deposit. So let's dive right into it, into the first scenario, which is a high cash flow and a high deposit scenario. So you have you have decent cash flow coming through, whether it be salaries, whether it be through other income, and you have a high deposit as well. Now, this is a perfect place where you would want a lot of people to be in, right? And so naturally that means that you know you can acquire two properties and and you should acquire two properties. The idea is to acquire one at a much more higher cash flow, still aiming for growth. And so you would go for something over 6% yield, but you would acquire a second property, which is slightly lower on yield, but still high on growth, but you would go for properties with multiple exit strategies. Okay. Now, every time you're going to go for a bigger land size or property with multiple exit strategies, you would always, majority of the time, sacrifice on the yield. Okay. Because what you're doing is you are making for the yield in the future. You're going to push the yield for that property in the future. Now, I always counsel and say this to people that you should never buy a property less than 4% yield. And even if you're buying a property less than 4% yield, you need to think about how are you going to move this property into more than 4% yield. And so if you don't have an answer to that, don't buy the property. Very, very important. Okay. And so, of course, you know, once you buy the first property, which is high cash flow, high growth, your serviceability is still intact. And then you go back and acquire a second property. And that would basically open the doors to everything. You can keep rinsing and repeating this strategy of creating more growth, higher cash flow, and higher deposits for yourself. Let's talk about the second scenario. So the second scenario is lower cash flow and higher deposits. Now you see, you see a lot of professionals falling into this trap where a husband and wife are coming together. They have one house, which is principal place of residence. They've spent a lot of money on principal place of residence. And so their borrowing is a bit trapped. They are very low on cash flow, but they have decent amount of equity sitting there, which is high deposit. And so what do you do in these circumstances? You know, naturally, the natural instinct for the people is, you know, they would go within the five kilometer radius and buy something else. And that's it. You know, their property portfolio is done for, for life, right? But what you need to do is you need to inject significant amount of cash flow into your portfolio. And so you need to not use all the deposit. You need to save the deposit for the next purchase. But you need to inject significant amount of cash flow into your portfolio by going for a high yielding property, which is going to also deliver significant amount of growth. And what you're going to do is you're going to use that short term, medium term growth to build onto the next property using the deposit that you've saved from the first property. Okay. And I see this time and time again, a lot of people basically fall into this trap. The third scenario is a scenario where you have high cash flow and low deposit. And a lot of these scenarios are, I always find that it's a lot of businesses fall into this trap. Um, they have a lot of cash flow sitting with them or people who are running sole trading businesses. You know, they have a lot of cash flow, but a lot of cash flow is tied into the business. 
And so they have little to no deposits. Okay. And so in these scenarios, what you need to do is you need to inject significant amount of growth into your portfolio. So if you have just enough deposit, if you, what I tend to tell people is, you know, get a loan from your own company, for example, okay, a 12 month loan and repay that loan back while you get the growth into that property within the first 12 months. And so you can't deviate from the fundamentals here. The scenario is still the same. What you're going to do is you are aiming for properties which are fundamentally right in high growth zones, blue chip suburbs. You can use LMI to your advantage. Go for a property that is going to give you almost instant growth and you can use that cash flow to build on your property portfolio faster. Okay. Now, a lot of times people ask me, can we go for a low yielding properties in these scenarios because you have a lot of cash flow? And that's fine. There is nothing wrong with going for a low yielding property in these scenarios, okay? Because you might get it a lot cheaper, okay? High yielding properties might attract a lot of premium in certain scenarios. And so what you need to do is if you're going for a low yielding property, say for example, in Melbourne, in a blue chip suburb, you need to have that thinking about how to convert this into a higher yielding property. If you're buying somewhere else, you know, you can add a granny at the back. You can change the configuration of the house from a three-bedroom, one-bathroom to a four-bedroom, two-bathroom. Or you can change it into a co-living space, for example, and create more yield for yourself. So you can do various things to manage the yield, but you can't sacrifice the growth in these circumstances. The fourth scenario, which comes to me pretty much on a daily basis, is where a 20-year-old is, you know, trying to enter into the market. And so they are low on cash flow and low on deposit. And so Naturally, their parents' advice to them is, hey, you know, be a bit stabilized, save more money, you know, you know, buy a house for yourself first, and then think about some of these things. And I say to people, as a 20, 21-year-old, I bought my first property when I was in early 20s as well. So I think that was one of the best decisions that I could do for myself, you know, in hindsight. And so the amount of years that you give to your portfolio is very crucial and very important. And the quicker you enter into the property life cycle, the more better your property portfolio is going to become. And so with these, with these particular circumstances, you can aim for a lower property price or lower uh, price point for property portfolios or properties with LMI in place. And so you can aim for, say, 88% LVR and go for a $350,000 property, okay? But you can't sacrifice the yield because you want to add more yield into your property portfolio in order to provide that growth that you're looking for in some of these circumstances. Now, of course, when I talk about growth, growth is very relative when you talk about all of these four scenarios, right? And so, you know, when you talk about growth in, in real sense, you know, people think, oh, you know, my property was $400,000 and it, it's now $800,000. So it's 100% growth that I got out of one of these properties, right? And a decent growth on any property portfolio when you compare it to Australian standards. An average property in Australia takes about 14 to 15 years to, for it to double in price. Okay? That cycle does not change. That cycle always remains the same. And so the growth does not happen in linear fashion. What happens with the growth is it's always chunky. You would see 20% growth and 30% growth and then no growth for two years and three years and then another 10% growth. What you need to do is you need to find those pockets where the growth is going to come faster. And that basically means as to what are the areas where income levels are changing, where the gentrification is changing, where, what are the suburbs that are converting into more affluent suburbs? What are the suburbs where mortgage affordability is changing quite drastically? For example, I use this example quite openly. 
uh, of Footscray in Melbourne, right? 2005, 2006, you know, I still remember this story. There was a house that I was renting and the owner of that property was buying a lot of properties in Glenroy. And everyone was, you know, and, and he said to me, hey, I want to buy something in Footscray. And I said, yeah, you know, a lot of junkies there, a lot of non-gentrified people there at that given point in time. And of course, you know, I wasn't that educated at that time as well. I was like, so why would you select Footscray? That doesn't make sense. You know, you need to select the suburb, which is nice and healthy. And I look back and I think about it. And I remember having that conversation four years later with him. And I said, did you end up buying in Footscray? And he said, no, everyone that I spoke to said no to me in buying in Footscray. I spoke to my relatives and they said, why would you buy it in a suburb where, you know, the crime rates are so high and people, you know, no one wants to live there and there is so much robberies in there. And he's like, that's the worst decision in my life that I've ever made. You know, look at Footscray right now, right? You cannot even imagine buying a $250,000 property because that's what he was buying, leaving Footscray and buying it in Glenroy, right? And so that's a typical example of that growth does not happen in a linear fashion. It happens in chunks. And the quicker you are, the closer you are to the growth cycle, the easier it is for you to catch some of these things. So I guess, Moss, um, these discussion points were very, very important. And a lot of us have experienced those things. Now, it brings me to the most important question. We talked about some of the mistakes in the portfolios. I would like you to dive a little bit deeper and let us know how to fix those mistakes. And also on the same note, I think if we can avoid making those mistakes, then I think fixing part comes later. And I think it'll be a lot harder and more expensive to fix mistakes. So I guess, where do you, I guess, what are the, some of the things, um, including, you know, um, using a buyer's agent or what, what are the, some of the things we could use to one, avoid those mistakes? And secondly, if we have already made those mistakes, how do we rectify them? Yeah. Ultimately, when you talk about an investor, uh, because the investor treats property buying as an event, they would buy a property and set and forget. They'd be like, oh, I'm going to take 30 years to pay this off and this would be my retirement home. Okay. And so a lot of people, when you talk to them, they have their principal place of residence and they're trying as fast as they can to pay that property off, thinking that this would be an asset that would save them in retirement. I say to people that the house that you're living in is not an asset, it's a liability, at least while it's being paid, it's being paid and paying off because it's not generating any income for you, right? And so what are you doing with that money that you're paying off? Okay. And so it's a very important question about how do you even identify what mistakes that you're making in a portfolio because you're so blindsided. A majority of the investors are so blindsided, they don't even think about, you know, the properties that they've acquired. Or by the time they think about the property that they acquire is when the growth is happening, everyone is celebrating and they are tucked in a corner crying. They'll be like, oh, my property did nothing for me. So I don't know what I, where did I go wrong. I remember having this conversation in 2020 with a person and this is just um, while the boom was happening. So 2020, 21, while the boom was happening. And so this person called me, a really good friend of mine, and he called me and he said, one of my properties has done amazingly well. One property has done nothing. And I don't know where I went wrong. And I was like, what did you buy? And he's like, an apartment in Gold Coast. And I was like, well, I don't have to tell you that, right? 
You're losing like $10,000 a year on that apartment. You think that the yield is great because it's 6%, but it's the wrong bloody product. So of course, you know, a lot of people, and he's been holding this for six years in anticipation, praying to God that, you know, the growth would come there, right? And so naturally what you need to do is understand how do you identify these mistakes? And so there's a series of questions that I ask about each and every property in order to get the answers about the portfolio or to get the right amount of mix in the portfolios as I move the portfolio forward, whether it be me myself looking into my own portfolio or whether I'm talking to my own clients. Okay, and so there are four questions predominantly, okay? The first question is, are the properties expected to deliver any growth in short and medium term? Okay, so you need to understand the suburb dynamics where you've bought that property. Okay, so that's very, very important. If you don't understand the suburb dynamics, that is the suburb going to take off or it's not going to take off, then you would be in a poor decision-making zone. Okay, number two, have you bought the fundamentally the right property? Is the property the right property in itself? Is it an investment-grade property? Have you bought a bloody apartment or have you bought a, a house in a mining town? You know, what have you bought? Is it fundamentally right? That's the second question. The third question is, if I don't sell this right now, would there be better opportunities out there? So I'm going to miss out on those opportunities if I keep holding this property. Okay, so that's the third question that I always ask myself or I always think about asking to my clients when I'm having these discussions. And the fourth question is, is the property impacting my lifestyle? Is holding this property or is property keeping this property in my portfolio changing my lifestyle. If I sell this, is, does my lifestyle improve? Okay, those are the four key questions that I would always ask to myself or to my clients. Now, what people don't understand is a lot of people are scared of selling these properties. I was talking to a client before and they said to me, Moss, if I sell the property right now, I don't think that I'll be able to borrow more, so I'm going to hold it. You know, it's like, it's like oh, if I sell this dead horse right now, can I buy another dead horse in the future? Like you wouldn't buy a dead horse anyway, period. You know, you don't want to buy these things anyway, right? And so your mentality and mindset is needs to change. It needs to shift. So remediation as part of the property portfolio strategy is very, very important. Okay, there would be times where you would fuck up. There would be times where you would fuck up because you haven't used the experts. There would be times where bloody experts fuck up as well, right? And so the idea is to monitor and measure how your portfolios are going and how your property is performing. It's a business decision to keep a property or sell a property, okay? It's as simple as taking a decision whether you keep an underperforming employee or not. You don't keep an underperforming employee in anticipation that magically one day he's going to wake up in the morning and become a high-performing employee. That doesn't happen, right? And so similar to that, why would you keep an underperforming property? All right. Look, uh, Moss, I guess, um, you know, you, you, you've given us some really, really good points and a lot to think about it. And, and I have gained a lot of knowledge from um, these points. So I guess I, I, I would like to, um, you know, finish this podcast that, you know, there's no point flogging a dead horse. And, um, and, and I, I love that analogy. But a lot of times people are making those decisions based on emotions rather than having their um, investor head or having a, um, a level head. Um, and I think easier said than done. A lot of times we humans, we are 
uh, full of emotions and um, very hard to separate them. But I guess, and that's what I think a lot of times people like yourself um, and your company can help because one, you have the expertise, two, you are not in the situations. You can make those financial and business decisions without having those emotions and having to have um, the right knowledge, which can help greatly people like myself. And and look, to be honest, I um, I um, I was thinking about all the investment decisions I have made over the years. Somehow I ended t- talking to you and all those decisions have worked out to be really, really fine. So, you know, that's why I, um, I, I'm very grateful. And I think a lot of people will get a lot of be- benefit and value out of these tried and tested, I guess, mistakes we all have made, but you of all people have that knowledge. So um, I would like to thank you and all the listeners out there who have spent the valuable time listening to this podcast. And, and I guess, guys, if you um, think about some of the questions you may have regarding and, and you want to ask those questions, please ask us in comments. And if you um, think there's more topics you would like us to ha- have a chat about, so please drop us a line and we would love to dive deep into those. Perfect, guys. Look after yourself. Stay well. And Moss, you have a few words of wisdom before we go. Look, 100%, I can't disagree with anything that you're saying. Um, use emotions to enjoy your life. Don't drive financial decision-making based on emotions. 100%. And yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's always awesome to be here. Keep listening, guys. Stay in touch. Take care. Keep smiling. Be kind. And keep investing. Adios. Peace.